0: Welcome to the St. Thomas the Doubter podcast. My name is Mark, and I'm the pastor of the Congregation of St. Thomas the Doubter, an independent ecumenical congregation for all people that embraces holy doubt, the importance of grace, and the power of solidarity in community. You can find out more about our congregation online at stthomascongregation.org. This podcast offers the scripture lessons and sermons from our Sunday evening services. In the future, it may also be a place for conversation and discussion on various issues of religion and faith. This is episode 15, and is from the service for September 17, 2023. The scripture lessons are Exodus 14, 19-31, and Matthew 18, 21-35 and the sermon is entitled remembering what god has done we hope you enjoy the episode the angel of god who was going before the israelite army moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them it came between the army of egypt and the army of israel and so the cloud was there with darkness and it lit up at One did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, Let's flee from the Israelites for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea not one of them had remained but the israelites walked on dry ground through the sea the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left thus the lord saved israel that day from the egyptians and israel saw the egyptians dead on the seashore israel saw the great work that the lord did against the egyptians so the people feared the lord and believed in the lord and in his servant moses A reading from the 18th chapter of the gospel according to St. Matthew, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, Not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him, and, as he could not pay, his lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. Then his lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger his lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So the Exodus story is one of particular fascination for most folks. I mean, it is a familiar story. We have seen it in many movies, most notably the 10 commandments and the Prince of Egypt. It's evocative, it's full of powerful imagery and we see God going to war with the Egyptian pharaoh. In fact, the entire book of the first half of the book of Exodus is set up as a contest between kings, between sovereigns. God on one hand, the pharaoh on the other, and here God triumphs. The, the pharaoh's army is utterly destroyed, horse and rider, as the song goes, thrown into the sea, and so great is the devastation, and so complete is Israel's deliverance, that we are told at the end, so the people feared the Lord, and believed in the Lord, and his servant Moses. So it's interesting to note where this story lies in the context of the rest of the stories of Exodus, because we have this remarkable scene of divine Deliverance and protection. So much so that we are told the people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Three days later, they begin to complain to Moses that the water doesn't taste quite right, that the water they have found in this wadi in the desert is bitter. So Moses turns to God. God says, Here, throw this piece of wood in the water, you'll be fine. They do. The water is sweet and they drink. 45 days later, the they begin to complain about food did you bring us out here into the wilderness just to kill us like what are we out here for how are we going to eat so god moses turns to god again and god provides manna and quails for the people to eat enough manna that they can gather enough to hold them tied them over the sabbath and they will have meat every night Later on, in chapter 17, they complain once again about water, and Moses strikes the rock, and water comes forth. And then we are told that on the third new moon since the Exodus, so by my reckoning, if the Exodus takes place on the night of the full moon, and Passover, that this would mean we're talking um, two and a half months later, they reach Sinai. And there they receive the covenant. They receive the Ten Commandments. They receive all the laws. And then Moses is invited up to the mountain to receive the covenant written on tablets. And we are told that he is gone for 40 days and 40 nights. And when he gets back, so this is four months total now, or if my math is correct, since the Exodus, He comes down and what have the Israelites done? They have made for themselves a golden calf. They have melted down all their jewelry and begun to worship this idol in the desert, helped out in no small measure by Moses' own brother, Aaron, who was the one who figured he would lend his expertise in how to make the thing. So how was it that in four months time, the Israelites seemed to have completely forgotten everything that God had done for them. It was almost like the exodus had not happened. It was almost like that whole Red Sea thing. That was so four months ago. What have you done for me lately, God? I guess nothing. Well, other than the manna and the quail and the water and everything else, they seemingly forgot what God had done for them and turned, as people always do, to fashion articles of their own deliverance, their own idols. But the same question, this same question about how could they not remember, is at the heart of the parable that we heard a few moments ago. Peter asks Jesus about forgiveness. And Peter, because, you know, he's the head disciple, probably thinks, that he's he's really onto something. And he says, how many times should I forgive? Seven times, right? He's like, he's thinking, clearly I'm going to show Jesus I get this whole forgiveness thing. And then Jesus says, no, 77 times. Or, depending on how you translate it, 70 times seven times. So 490 times. And to illustrate this forgiveness this imperative toward forgiveness, Jesus tells a parable. And in the parable, a king is settling accounts, and one of his slaves owes him 10,000 talents. The slave pleads for mercy, and the king has his debt canceled, right? I mean, the slave is pleading, just give me more time, and the king just wipes out the debt altogether, then the slave comes upon one of his fellow slaves who owes him a hundred denarii and this fellow slave does the same thing throws himself on the mercy of the creditor says please you know i'll pay you back and the the first slave has no such compassion throws the man in debtor's prison now i want to pause for a second to talk about what they owe right I, i did a little math um because 10,000 talents is an enormous sum of money. A talent was basically a year's wage. Right? So somehow, and I would love to know how we got in this debt, somehow this first slave owed his master 10,000 years of wages. I did two sets of calculations. At a living wage, that's $240 million dollars. At minimum wage, that's $160 million. By contrast, his fellow slave owed him a hundred denarii, and a denarius was a day's wage. So his fellow slave owed him like three months worth of wages, which if you do it at a living wage, comes out to be about $12,000, and at minimum wage, $8,000. That's 20,000 times less than what the first slave owed his lord. 20,000 times less. It's astounding, right, The, the, the sheer size of the debt that the first person owes is so much greater than what the second person owes that it's, it, it boggles the imagination. And so the fellow slaves, when they hear about this, they are understandably upset because he has benefited from grace beyond measure. Right? I mean, our human brains have a hard time conceiving of numbers greater than 150, let alone 240 million. 10,000 talents, that's how much money this man owns owes. And when they hear they are upset, they tell the king, who then promptly says, you received so much, in fact, the word says, after everything, right? I mean, I like, pardoned your debt, this enormous debt, and shouldn't you have done the same thing, something that only requires one twenty thousandth of the same amount of compassion? And he throws him in prison to be tortured until he pays the debt. Now, I don't know exactly how that works. (laughs) I don't understand how desert debtors prison works in general, but it's a metaphor, so we don't have to go into too much detail about it. And so Jesus concludes then, so my father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, three years ago, I uh, had the privilege of preaching on this same text at at St. Matthew's in the sermon series that was, at the time, was called uh, Things St. Matthew Wants You to Know. And so, this was in a, ser- a sermon called St. Matthew Wants You to Know That Jesus is Really Big on Forgiveness. And we talked a lot about the 490 times and uh, or 70 times seven times and, and so on. And we talked about simply the, the Christian imperative to forgive. And it's all true, Jesus is really insistent on forgiveness. I mean, in fact, even the numbers in that, when he says seventy times seven or seventy-seven times, that's a number that's meant to be like saying innumerable, scads, loads, however much. But I want to focus on the remembrance part, because both is neither Israel nor the first slave remembered what had been done for them. Now, I I don't mean that they had no memory of it because they might have remembered it as a fact that yes, that happened, I remember that, but they didn't remember in the religious sense. And I know we've talked about this before. We talked about it last spring about the story of Hagar and the God who hears and the God who remembers. We, we we've talked about this, but remembrance is an act. When we celebrate the Eucharist, we do it because Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. Something, by the way, that we cannot remember. We were not there, but we remember by reenacting in the same way the Passover Seder invites Jews to remember the Exodus with language like, this is what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, reenacting the deliverance of God, remembering it by bringing it into the present moment in a real and powerful way. There's an old tradition of this in Christian faith and in Jewish faith. In the Christian tradition, we refer to it as the imitatio dei, the imitation of God or the imitatio Christi, The imitation of Christ, that we are called to act like God does, to act like Jesus does. In fact, the whole model of a rabbi and disciple is not like taking notes. Like if you notice, the disciples don't carry around notebooks, they're not writing anything down, they're not prepping for tests these kinds of students learn by imitating their master that is how rabbinic instruction worked in the ancient world was you studied you learned at the foot of a master you learned the master's wisdom you learned the master's teachings but then you did what the master did that was the main point of being a disciple and so that's why jesus says If you don't, maybe he's speaking to just the disciples here, but today that includes us. If you don't do what has been done for you, that's a problem. The disciples are supposed to reenact, remember their master. Now there are some Christians today who have openly rejected some of Jesus' teachings. I read some interviews with some who, when confronted about Jesus' teachings on mercy, forgiveness, love of the stranger, and love of enemies, said, well, yeah, he said that, but it's too soft. It doesn't really work these days. It doesn't work anymore. Now, the problem with that is that we don't forgive because it works, right? We don't show love because it's a good strategy or it's effective, right? All we need to do to understand that is look at Jesus's own story and see what his love and mercy and grace brought upon him. It's not because it's meant to work. It's not a life strategy. It's about following the master. It's, it's a covenantal response. See, the interesting thing about the law, about the Torah, is that it's not the thing that is required for salvation. It's the thing that was given after that salvation. The, the Israelites get the Ten Commandments. They get the law after God delivers them from Egypt, not before Moses doesn't come to them with 613 commandments and says, God says, if you do these, maybe he'll get us out of here. That's not how it works. The act of grace comes, and then everything else is a response to and a remembrance of that grace. The law, Christian discipleship, charity, mercy, justice, all of it is a response to the grace already received so we can't be disciples if we are not willing to learn and to remember and to reenact. I mean failing to show mercy and grace. it isn't just a moral failing. It's a failing of discipleship. It's a failure to imitate Christ, to imitate God. Ultimately, Failing to live out lives of love, mercy, compassion, justice, and grace is a failure to remember what God has done. Thank you for listening to this episode of the St. Thomas the Doubter podcast. For more information about the podcast and our congregation, visit www.stthomascongregation.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll join us again soon.